You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm Eleanor Rust, Marketing Director at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music innovation and music technology. Music Tectonics is not just a podcast. It's also an annual music innovation conference. After two years online and hybrid, our 2022 conference will take place in person and face-to-face October 25th through 27th in Santa Monica, California. That's Los Angeles's neighbor by the beach. In the lead up to the event, we have a mini series on the podcast on the stars of the 2022 Music Tectonics Conference. These folks are star music innovators in their own right, but they're also star sponsors of this year's edition of the conference. Our sponsors are big thinkers and future-focused movers and shakers. They sign on to sponsor in order to support the community that gathers at Music Tectonics. You'll get to meet them at the event, but for now, keep listening to get to know two of them. Today, Tristra Newyear Jaeger, Music Tectonics host and director of strategy at Rock, Paper, Scissors, will chat with Jamie Marconet to find out about Luminate, the preeminent entertainment data and insights company, and the big picture trends they're tracking in the music industry. But first, Trista sits down with Jocelyn Say, the founder of Bridger, an independent rights management entity, to talk about the future of music licensing. Over to you, Trista. Bridger is an independent rights management entity that collects and distributes copyright royalties generated on music streaming services for songwriters. Bridger is a free service with no registration or annual fees, eliminating the usual administrative headaches of collecting royalties. Bridger's goal is to bring a copyright solution to all songwriters by making all processes easy and affordable. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn Sai, the founder of Bridger. Thanks, Jocelyn, for joining us. Hi, Tristra. Thanks for having me. (laughs) No problem. So you have a really varied career that spanned a number of sectors across at least two continents. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to create Bridger? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I have a career which is not uh, totally thought from the beginning, but I started uh, in the music industry. I started as as a music manager, as a manager of a French artist called Sébastien Tellier, a guy with a big beard. And uh, fortunately <laughs> enough, I, uh, I could start this career by touring with him and uh, the then well-known band called Air. Uh, and that Wait, was Air? A, uh, Air. Oh, A-I-R, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. No. Sexy boy and yeah, uh, no. Virgin Suicide. Amazing. <laughs> That's quite a band to, to start your career with. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, a good introduction. Um, and uh, I've done that for three years. I followed my... Uh, Poulain, my artist, as we say in France, for three years. And then I moved uh, to a different sector. I moved to fashion. Uh, in fact, uh, I joined a, a group of people that were my friends. And we, we set up a fashion brand. We set up trade shows. Uh, we did many things. We, we launched uh, Vice magazine in France. Uh, we, uh, and we made a series of uh, collaborations with artists such as uh, Kings of Leon, Kid Cudi, uh, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth and many other, many famous artists, in fact. And we were kind of good in making leather jackets for them. For them. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, after this uh, period, I've, I got back, uh, so to say, to, the, to an audio slash music world by joining the company called Radionomy uh, as the CFO at the time. I was the chief financial officer of the company. Um, we sold to Vivendi, 
this uh, the company that uh, was owning Universal Music until uh, recently. Uh, I guess they still own something of uh, Universal Music. Uh, then I moved to Brazil uh, to do something totally different. I've moved uh, into the um, waste management in Brazil. Uh, wow. Working yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got a little pivot there. <laughs> <laughs> a little pivot, as you say, uh, which was, uh, yeah, very um, fulfilling, I would say, very interesting. Um, and I stayed there for a couple of years. Uh, and then I moved back to Europe for uh, family reasons. So I joined this group of companies uh, that I was working for two to three years ago and uh, starting working for a, a company called Jamendo as the general manager of the company. And from then we, we started to see a, a need uh, for independent artists to, uh, to manage their, their copyright uh, essentially online because many independent artists now are starting online rather than uh, not online. <laughs> uh, and we, we saw that there, were, there was a market here for, uh, for us to, to be in, um, because many of those uh, independent artists using uh, digital distribution services uh, didn't realize that uh, they had to be affiliated to a copyright management organization or to a PRO to get uh, their copyright when their music was streamed uh, on streaming services mainly. We realized that and uh, we decided to create what is now Bridger. Uh, so uh, as you said in the introduction, Bridger is an independent management entity um, based in Luxembourg, uh, working for any, uh, for, with songwriters from uh, any country. And our mission is to collect copyright when the music of those songwriters is streamed on uh, on all the digital platforms on earth. Yeah, what was the biggest problem you felt you needed to solve in order to support these independent artists in collecting globally? I mean, that's a huge uh, that's a huge mission. How did like what what is one of the key pieces in the puzzle that you felt you had to put together? Uh, I guess what we say, our motto is uh, simplicity. <laughs> so one of the things we we realized during the let's say the interview phase and talking with uh, many 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 uh, songwriters from everywhere was that uh, in many occasions it was complicated. Uh, the the copyright concepts are complicated. It's not easy to navigate. Uh, they are different from one country to the other. They are different from one continent to the other. Uh, so it's not easy to understand. So that was one thing we wanted to uh, to help with. Uh, so improve the understanding meant uh, bring uh, as much knowledge as we could to this uh, specific, let's say, category of songwriters by giving them uh, definitions, uh, by talking to them, by doing master classes, etc. Um, and simple also means that you do not have to. Uh, you have no barriers when you start working with uh, your copyright management organization. So we, we tried to lift any kind of entry barriers for those songwriters, uh, such as uh, a, a payment mm -hmm. when you when you join the CMO. So having to pay up front can be a can yeah. be a big burden if you're an independent songwriter who's you know just on the on the emerging side. As an independent artist, you, you're not very comfortable with how much money you will make from copyright. And generally speaking, uh, copyright is, uh, 
is less lucrative than master rights. So uh, you, you may be reluctant to invest on your copyright when you already know that you're not making a lot of money on, on the master rights. So uh, for us, it was uh, clear that we should not charge anything for, uh, for, for songwriters entering into this, uh, this area. And what seemed important to us too is that uh, no matter how uh, small you are when you start, it's important that you, you are in the game, let's say from day one, uh, because the, the, the more you wait, uh, the more you, you, you may lose at some point, uh, and it's hard to go backwards. I mean, you can, there are backclaiming systems and all, but it's always better to be there from, from scratch. That was uh, something we wanted to make sure was not an issue for songwriters. That's great. So uh, well, how would you describe this moment in time for innovation in music from your perspective? I mean, you can think about licensing or working with independent artists. What are some of the big trends and influences that are strongest in music licensing and in your work? Um, I think that one of the most uh, clear uh, patterns in, in the music industry, innovation in music itself, I don't know, but in the music in industry is finance. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's very overwhelming. Finance is everywhere. Uh, it's uh, one of the biggest tendencies in terms of uh, buying copyrights, as we saw with uh, with those actors such as Hypnosis, uh, Roundhill, uh, Primary Rev, etc., etc., with huge um, financial funds funding them. Uh, and this is a tendency that goes down to uh, pretty much everything in the music industry. Yeah, right how, now. Do, how does that trickle down from your perspective? Uh, how does that trickle down? What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, how do these huge deals happening, um, you know, sort of the 1% of uh, big name artists affect independent artists or sort of mid tier artists that are more middle class? How does that affect either their royalties or how they view their own work? Uh, for me, it has a. It, potentially has a good influence on copyright for everyone uh, until, uh, well, what we've seen, I mean, online at least, is that uh, master owners get the lion's share of the, of the business. Uh, thanks to the arrival of those financial actors, there's a pressure around publishing, around copyright to have this this balance rebalanced in favor mm -hmm. of, of copyright owners, which is uh, what we're working for. So I see, well, there, there's a good, a good chance that the, the, the value for songwriters increases in the coming years. So I see that very positively. And we, we've seen that too in, well, in Europe, in the US, in the, we, we're seeing the rates going up for songwriters. And I, I believe that's very positive. And I believe it's uh, linked to this pressure uh, of capital for the worse or the better. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting, though. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see in five years how that impacts songwriters and their careers and how they develop creatively. So there are a lot of emerging tech frontiers now, too. And we have, you know, in addition to this very interesting financialization trend, we're seeing all sorts of new formats and venues and contexts where music is being used or performed, um, including places like the metaverse and, you know, huge hat tip to Vicky Nauman and some other thinkers who are already saying we need to be thinking about this. But Jocelyn, I also know this has been on your mind. So I'm curious how you're thinking about what we need to do to get ready for uh, things like virtual reality, Web3, whatever we mean by that, the metaverse, etc. How are you thinking about all that? 
well, we see that that's something we've been discussing quite a lot uh, recently, I would say. Uh, we are clearly seeing that a, as an, a good opportunity for artists to make a living, to find well, other ways to, to express themselves, that's for sure. Uh, but in terms of an industry, what we're hoping is that it's, it's an occasion for, uh, for this development of the internet to avoid repeating the mistakes that have been made with, uh, with Web2 <laughs> in, uh, in a nutshell. That's a dream, by, right? <laughs> by, yeah, by mistake, I mean uh, forgetting licensing uh, somehow. Oops. So making, making sure that the new actors are well aware that um, copyright also means copyright owners uh, and that there are a series of actions to take to make sure that uh, you are licensed correctly. And what we've observed is that if you avoid licensing completely, again, it's a race of the most, uh, the strongest ones, of the wealthiest one uh, to win the battle. And they have such a power <laughs> that they tend to, uh, to, um, to make the deals to their benefit immediately. So if, if you want to make sure that you're not repeating that, you should, Web3 in general, should uh, think about uh, intellectual property uh, from the beginning. Because that's, uh, yeah, that's important, obviously. Great. So speaking of the future, let's get a little sci-fi for a second here. When you imagine an ideal near future music industry, what do you see? And this doesn't necessarily have to do with licensing, but it could be, you know, I really want to have uh, an instrument that I can play like a laser gun, or I want to be able to listen to music while I, I don't know, while I dig in my garden. What are, what are, the, what are your dreams about uh, music innovation in the near future? Uh, I was thinking about uh, what would be the future of music recently, um, looking also at all the climatic uh, and uh, yeah. well, course of the world events. Mm -hmm. And eventually, um, even though we're, we're working in a very, a very innovative world, uh, even though we're working with technology a lot, because that's what we do when you collect copyright uh, using, with digital services, you're essentially working with uh, computer databases, metadata, etc., etc. Um, well, my 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 sci-fi would be pretty much uh, low tech, I would say. It's <laughs> good though. Coming coming back to very uh, very basic uh, things. So, well, very basic. I don't know if it's very basic, but I imagine the future as a as a sort of a a comeback to what has been hoped by innovation, which is a direct link between artists and their audience, <laughs> yes. physically. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what I imagine. Yeah, no, it's fun to think about, I mean, in, as we enter into this increasingly mediated environment, are we going to have, uh, are we going to put a premium on unmediated experiences? Like, we all go to the woods with, our, with, a, with an artist and listen to music completely unamplified. Like, things like that intrigue me. Like, how will people... Uh, I think there's going to be a hunger for some things like that, as well as these fancy metaverse, you know, totally immersive technologies. Yeah, it goes along. In fact, I, I guess it's, it pursues the same goal, uh, except that at some point you may want to uh, 
get back to something as crazy as reality. <laughs> there we go. It's sort of back to the sort of sort of the organic food movement kind of thing, but for music. Um, Probably. So just to wrap up this speed round, I'm wondering what you're hoping the Bridger team will get out of the music tectonics experience. What are you guys looking forward to at the conference? Well, uh, the, the quality of the persons uh, that will uh, that have participated to the event uh, in the past uh, makes us quite eager to go there. I think there's a good crowd of, uh, of people from the industry, so I hope we'll be able to meet with uh, lots of them uh, in a friendly atmosphere. That's what I hope for. We try to be friendly. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> thank you. I thank you so much, Jocelyn, for sharing your thoughts, and I can't wait to see you in Santa Monica. Great. Bye. Thanks, Trista, and hope to see you soon. Awesome, Trista. Stick around after the break to meet Jamie Marconette, Senior Director of Music Insights and Industry Relations at Luminate. See you in person at the Music Tectonics Conference. It's happening October 25th through 27th, 2022 by the beach in Santa Monica, California. We have a full three days of programming, networking, and carousel rides. So I want to tell you a little bit more about the panels that I've been working on. So I'm going to tell you about two of them. The first one is our music community engagement panel. This is going to have speakers including Maria Garonis, who is senior partnerships manager and oversees creators and artists at Reddit. She's also the CEO and founder of Cool Shit, Cool People. And we are also going to have Manny Toro, who is global VP of music marketing at SoundCloud. Now, the next panel I want to tell you about is a panel about the metaverse. And I know I said we weren't going to have an oversaturation of Web3 at Music Tectonics this year, but come on, we have to have at least a few panels that touch on the topic. So I present to you Music Rights in the Metaverse, a fireside chat with Michael Huppy, Sound Exchange's president, here as he dives into issues around rights and payments in the metaverse and where he sees the path to move forward. So that's a little bit about the programming that's going to happen on the 26th. And now I want to tell you about some exciting things we have going on on October 27th. So at Expert Dojo, the first event of the day, we are going to hear from our friends over at Media Research. We are going to have a presentation from Chris Dakrar and Tatiana Sirisano as they dive into the idea that music consumption is transitioning to become background music and what that means for the current economy and the industry as a whole. Then stay tuned for some exciting programming announcements for a closing event at the UMG offices in Santa Monica. You can get your picture taken by the big globe outside. Get your Music Tectonics conference badge at musictectonics.com. Luminate is the preeminent entertainment data and insights company, unleashing access to the most essential, objective, and trustworthy information across music, film, and television, with data compiled from hundreds of verified sources. Today, the company maintains its more than 30-year legacy of accurate storytelling by powering the iconic Billboard music charts, while also adding to the premier database for the television and film industries. If the name Luminate is not ringing a bell and is new to you, there's a reason for that. Their data and insights are still very familiar, and the company was formerly known as Nielsen Music and an MRC Data. So today we have with us Jamie Marconette, who is Senior Director of Music Insights and Industry Relations at Luminate. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so, so happy to be here uh, talking with you today about this. 
Yeah. Well, sadly, we're going to have a shorter conversation, but I think we could probably jam on this for hours. But let's start off by finding out a little bit more about your background, Jamie. How did you get into this role at Luminate and what exactly do you do? Sure. So I am, as you pointed out, Senior Director of Music Insights and Industry Relations at Luminate. Um, I joined Luminate in May after spending eight and a half years with the Sony Music Nashville digital team, uh, where I was using progressive digital and data uh, marketing to power artist campaign. So I was a digital lead for artists, um, but really used a lot of the data that was at my fingertips to craft these campaigns and then also look at consumers um, to, to build the most effective and engaging campaigns for, for my artists. So, you know, as you pointed out, we at Luminate rebranded in March. Uh, we were PM, PMRC data before that. Um, and then, you know, we obviously power the billboard charts along with this you know, in my current role, we have over 500 first party data sources uh, for those efforts, which we make available to the industry. So that's coming from the DSPs, that's coming from other countries, that's coming from so many different sources. And what we're able to do with this is really, really look at the global trends. Uh, we're able to spotlight um, what's happening in different genres, different regions uh, across the US, and then, you know, as well, always, you know, power back to the, the billboard charts. Um, and then we also have a market research arm, which goes out and uh, pulls consumers across the world to you know kind of add that intent in that why to, to what we're seeing. That's really helpful. And we were talking about this just a minute ago before we started recording. It's so handy to get another another view into why people are doing what they're doing. And we can see what they're doing, but we really don't know why sometimes. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, and that's part of that's part of my role at Luminate as well as, you know, the industry is just drowning in data. And so part of my efforts is to um, is kind of a storyteller, really. And so I dig in on the data um, and the key insights to find the stories that's in the music data and then also return them back to the music community with with actionable insights that they can take and uh, build strategies around. Uh, that is that is a wonderful thing, actionable insights. <laughs> so it's what we're all searching for. So I want to talk about one of your most recent uh, releases to the music business community. Um, you you know you've been drawing on the sort of deep historical as well as very current, up to date data that you have, um, and really using that unique perspective to paint this bigger picture. So you put out a, a media report not too long ago, and really honed in on some important trends that have marked the at least the first half of 2022. So one of those stories really went a little wild. And a lot of people in the music business industry, you know, music, music business trades, etc, were talking about it. And that's the role of catalog versus newer releases. But there were a lot of other insights in that report that maybe didn't get as much love and attention, but I thought were really noteworthy. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go uh, to the bottom of the list of your report. I want to I want to I really want to talk a little bit with you today about um, your your insight that music is global, but language matters. So um, from what I understand, you've started to really gather country-level data for 47 countries, and this gives you some interesting abilities to compare and contrast and see what is doing well and why in different markets. Um, and you've come up with something called music similarity scores. Could you walk us through what those are and why they matter? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, this is a really, really fun one. So with all the country level data that we've um, that we're able to bring in, we started looking at the songs that overlap in 
different countries and regions. And so, you know, as an example of this, um, you know, if we start with the United States, we can see that of the top 10,000 songs in Canada against the top 10,000 songs in the U.S., 75 percent, you know, overlap. So there's 7,500 songs in Canada that you can find in the top 10,000 of the U.S. Now, as we start going down, um, you will see that India is actually at 12%. So there it's only, you know, 1,200. Um, Japan has 14% against the U.S. And what this is really showing is the differentiation um, between music markets. So you're going through our list of 47 countries. You can say that India is actually the most differentiated music market from the U.S. You know, they are, they have, uh, a lot of local content and things that is very different from ours. And so what I think is really, really interesting about this as well um, is that, you know, using this, you could start to see where triggered countries um, exist. So if, you know, if you're looking at countries that are similar in their musical makeup, you could see how a song could then move from one country to another. Yeah. Uh, so if you're looking at your own, you could, you could say, okay, well, you know, where would be a good market? What is showing similar signs? To ours and so that's how we came up with the similarity score and you can and, also um, you could also see if like oh my gosh my song's taking off in india or japan like maybe it's going to have a lot more global poten potential than i thought if it can break through there definitely yeah definitely definitely and uh, along with japan you could start looking like okay well what is what lines up with japan you know what how could i move to another country or what could be a jumping region um and then the only other thing that i wanted to mention about this is that you know we do see that you know, kind of going back to the U.S. and the Canada example, that a lot of this is driven by language, which comes from the title that you pointed out. Um, <laughs> you know, that a lot of uh, what ties these areas together is language makes it easier to jump. Um, but it's a really, really fascinating, really, really fascinating thing to start diving into and start pulling that out to, to see how music can travel globally. One other interesting point is uh, you call it collaboration generation. You looked at how co like collaborations between artists like in the same genre or across genres uh, play out with with listeners of different age groups. So um, not surprisingly, uh, hip hop is kind of the source of this interest in collaboration and kind of sharing audiences and sharing artistic visions and worlds, but it's spreading to all sorts of other genres and people of different ages have different reactions to that. Would you, could you walk us through a few of those insights that you found there? Yeah, definitely. So this is a really, really fun one. And it's interesting to, you know, to look at because one of the things that we've noticed is that over the last several years, the amount of collaborations in the top 10,000 tracks is going up. Um, if you think about what's been going on, pandemic, artists and bands were not able to go out and tour together. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, thought that, you know, one way to start getting in front of each other's fans was to then collaborate on streaming services and through tracks. And so it really lines up um, to, you know, that that would be a thing that artists would do when they can't go out and get in front of them. Uh, but to your point about, you know, different genres and different genre fans and how open they are to collaborating. We have seen that hip hop rap fans, um, you know, 83% of the fans of that genre like it when their top favorite artists collaborate with another. Um, Latin fans comes in at 79%, you know, and then you have some other genres, electronic dance and pop, um, 
coming in after that. The one thing that we did think that was really, really interesting is, you know, when this comes from our market research and our research team is what pulled this out is that uh, boomers in general, they actually were the least open to artists collaborating. And we did, we did think that that was, uh, was an interesting, was an interesting fact as well. And just to give some context about that, they were uh, by, it was by a pretty good measure. Uh, Gen X was actually the second least open um, at 71% and then boomers were at 63. Wow. Um, you know, it's just, they, they, I think like a lot of things like smartphones and Facebook, maybe the boomers will ease into collaborations and features in their favorite music. <laughs> well, you know, that's actually, I mean, you do look at a song like Elton John and Dua Lipa, right? And so maybe that's sort of the way that, you know, you can start mm -hmm. reaching, you know, the boomer group in terms of these collaborations, because, you know, we also saw that that was one of the top collaborations of the year. And um, it was the top in its format of dance electronic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that a way to start bringing in those, uh, an audience that might not be as receptive, but you pair those together. And I don't know about you, but I heard that song in so many different settings. It was, <laughs> it was, it was ubiquitous. It was all over the place. That's awesome. So I'm also curious what you think. This is asking you to be a little bit of a, of a um, fortune teller. So forgive me if this isn't appropriate to your role, but what do you think? Will these will this collaboration trend continue? Um, I mean, I'm thinking just from the songwriting side and how publishing credits have multiplied for major hits. And it's already happening kind of in the in this on the songwriting side in the studio. Um, will it continue on the master side? I think it will because I think it is bringing success in this mm -hmm. in this area. Um, you know, I think that. Let's look at you know the Latin genre, which has done a lot of collaborations for a you know for a while. Um, there you know have been a lot of collaborations and getting each other's uh, in front of each other's fans and being able to really build awareness for themselves as as artists uh, by doing that. And so I think that there is a little bit of a blueprint there with the Latin genre in particular, um, and obviously rap, hip hop, and other genres too. But the ones that have really been doing this for a while and that you know, is what we're seeing through the pandemic is that Latin is also one of the fastest growing genres. Mm -hmm. um, them in, in country, we're, we're a couple of the, you know, the fastest growing. And so I think that there is a blueprint for success and, and uh, an ability to get in front of more fans. And I think that because of that, you could definitely see this continue um, as it as pairs of fans are into it and um, has also been, you know, successful. It's also such a great, a discovery mechanism. So nowadays you can just click and be like, oh, I like this person singing on this track. What else have they done? Um, I've done that numerous times and found a bunch of music that I really, really liked that I never would have known how to find any other way. So I think it's a, especially for mid-tier and emerging artists, it's such a helpful, uh, it's a helpful way to find fans that are really into what you do. Oh, yeah, 100%. I totally agree. And, and I started thinking about, you know, different um, different subgenres that, that collaborate a lot and, you know, that ability to really build awareness overall for, for all the artists through it. 
yeah, like out, uh, my personal favorite outrun <laughs> and, I, and, and um, synthwave. There's just the collaborations are basically the only really good way to find your next favorite track. So anyway, uh, maybe I admitted a little bit too much there. Okay. So um, where I want to ask you a little bit about where you see um, where we are right now and it, just in general in terms of music innovation. Um, what do you think are some of the strongest trends and influences from your perspective in the world of music innovation? And you're looking at data, you're looking at how people are actually listening to music, why they're listening to certain things or buying things in a certain format. Where are you seeing some of the most exciting moments where innovation is happening or might happen? So I think that, you know, kind of, I think that a lot of it is where we're able to track data from, I think is, is, is an amazing innovation. You know, when I started looking at a lot of the stories that have been coming out, and the ability to start diving in on a market level to see where something started bubbling. You know, I wanna, wanna call out a recent example that, you know, the New York Mets pitcher, Edwin Diaz, he comes out to a certain song. And this is the song Narco by uh, Blaster Jacks and Timmy Trumpet. It mm -hmm. was released in 2017. And it had been, you know, streaming at roughly, you know, 100, 230,000 streams a week, give or take. Well, in late July, it started taking off. And, you know, by the, with, between the week ending 721 and the week ending 811, streams had actually grown up to 1.2 million a week. Digital song huh. sales had jumped 5,700% from 60 a week to over 3,500. Wow. And so what you start looking at, you know, in some of the innovations around like being able to index things and you're like, okay, well, yeah, New York is obviously the leader here and it's, it's three and a half times the next closest market. And so I think a lot of the innovations that, you know, we can, we can see now is where these true points of music discovery are. Amazing. And so you can start kind of going down the rabbit hole a little bit, like <laughs> I probably just did. I love it. But, but, you know, I think that the ability to start getting a very, very good, uh, good glimpse and view into what the consumer and the behavioral aspects are when you can start matching, you know, intent uh, from the consumers, you can start matching, you know, the, the market indices to be able to see where something is growing. I think that the innovations around that level of data has been really, really powerful. So you can start saying, okay, this is why it happened. And, you know, does that then help build your strategies for, for other places. So on the data side, I think that that's really, really a critical and, and great in innovation. I wanted to ask you, what do you guys think was happening? Were people shazamming the track in the stadium or on a broadcast? Or how were New Yorkers getting turned on a narco? So I think that it has a couple of different things. I think that, you know, I think that people inside of the stadium, I think that people tuning in on TV, I think that, you know, people start hearing it. Um, you know, obviously it's wrapped up in their own fandom for the Mets, uh, but then it's also speaking to musical fandom. I think that those are coming together there. And so it started bubbling out of, you know, out of this, uh, this entrance music for the, for the pitcher for Edwin Diaz, who's the closer. So he comes in at the ninth when emotions are high. Nice. And I think that it really just starts hitting on all of these really, you know, basic fundamental uh, levels and, you know, people just kind of took it and ran with it. I really love how music is in so, is in people like how music moves people's hearts in so many different places and in so many different ways. It like it's, it's always makes me makes me 
glad to be alive. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I want to get a little bit sci-fi with you in the last moments we have here. And what I mean by that is I want you to imagine an ideal near future music industry. What do you see? That's a great question. So I, <laughs> I definitely see more and more ways of music discovery. You know, I think that also what we've just kind of spoke to is, hey, I heard something. Now I have access to it. I think that in the near future, I think we'll see, you know, new ways for um, engagement around fandom. You know, one of the things that we were able to pull out and, and was in our, our mid-year um webinar that we recently did was that cassette sales are rising and you know that's a really really fun and that's a cool thing and it did double uh from 2020 to 2021 and we're talking actually about a, a, a jump from 173,000 to almost 350,000 cassettes sold in a year what and, you know i think that you know it's and that's a great great fun fun story it plays in nostalgia but i think what it also shows is that in music, there is still a very, very big place for super fans and um, either a physical product or, you know, pieces of merch. So I think that, you know, when we start seeing those sorts of things spike, I think that that shows that interest for that that, that sort of fandom to, to have something to hold on to. Um, I also think that, you know, new ways of engagement with Web3 and NFTs for immersive experiences um, and expression of fandom, I think that that's going to you know, as that whole space continues to develop, I think there will be ways that maybe, you know, we're not even considering right now in how people are using NFTs uh, to really, really build and allow fans in. You know, one thing I wanted to call out is our research team is actually currently in field with a spotlight um, research project for NFTs, metaverse and gaming that is out, you know, this this fall. In September, and you know, really, really looking at the awareness, engagement, and attitudes around there. So I think that that is a major, major place. And then also, I really think that more access to more music globally is going to be, you know, a really, really big thing as people um, are able to uh, have new services in emerging markets and things like that. And all of a sudden, you know, the world's music is at the fingertips of so many more people. I think that will continue to break down barriers and um, also allow, you know, musicians to, um, and artists to start reaching fans in, in places that, you know, maybe never seemed possible. And, uh, and make the you know, coolest musical hybrids that anyone has ever dreamed of. <laughs> I, think, I really think so. I, I think, think so too. Emerging markets where there's more access to more music and more sounds, I think it's going to be great. And I think that it's going to, um, it's going to be a really, really, really fun uh, world for music. Wonderful. So everyone, um, you know, Jamie just talked about an upcoming report. And if you want to hear more of this kind of amazing data storytelling, deep diving, rabbit holing, um, all the fun stuff we've been able to do very briefly here, we will be holding a webinar with Luminate um, very soon after the Music Tectonics Conference. The date is still TBA, but we'll keep everyone posted. And all uh, Music Tectonics Conference badge holders will be invited to the data stravaganza. I'm doing some uh, some scare quotes right now, which no one can see, but <laughs> it will be really, really amazing. Um, and we'll fill you in on what the exact content and format will be, but it will feature a ton of Luminate's data and trend spotting. Um, but for now, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking the time. And I really, really enjoyed talking about data with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. And uh, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.